Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome back to The Peripheral. Today's episode is another one about loss. And I promise I'm going to switch it up uh, and do some other topics. But I do think that talking about today's subject is important during the holidays for lots of different reasons. Uh, Today I talk with Kim, who lost her daughter to a drunk driving accident. Holidays, birthdays are always supposed to be when we come together and the closeness of family and support and celebration. But how does one celebrate when your family has been broken, when you have suffered a tremendous loss? And if anything else, I want this episode to truly be about people out there who may be spending the holidays alone, maybe spending the holidays without, without a certain family member, to know that you aren't alone. There are people out there that have been through this. There are people out there that do care about you. And maybe take the time to call that person accept that invite to a friend's dinner, whatever it is, because I promise you, you are not alone. So we'll start with introduce yourself and what we're going to be talking about today. My name's Kim, and we're going to be talking about my daughter, Amber. She was killed in an auto accident on October 28th, 2012. She was a very big personality. I didn't have her until I was like 27, so I was a little bit older than most people anyway when they have kids. So she was the center of attention because she was the youngest of the grandkids. She would set things up in the middle of the room when we would have Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever and do shows for us. She would sing and dance and she loved gymnastics. She was in gymnastics for many years. Uh, she was a, actually a junior in high school when she passed, and she was a varsity cheerleader. And for somebody that young, when she passed away, all I heard was people say, she was my best friend. She was my best friend. She was my best friend. And I thought, how can one person have so many best friends? Yeah. But that's just the way she was. She was a very giving and caring person. She would come to me at least once a week and say, you know, mom, so-and-so didn't have any lunch money, so I gave them money to eat on. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. That was her personality. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what you want to see in your children. Absolutely. You don't want to hear about them bullying. You don't want to hear about them doing the wrong thing choice. I can't imagine any parent would be mad at their child for giving some other kid in need their lunch money. Right. Yeah. So like I said, she was 17 when she passed away. She was a junior in high school. She was a cheerleader. She had a job, part-time job. She worked at Plato's Closet in Muncie. And about a couple weeks before she had passed away, I had been having some health issues and 
we were just sitting around talking in the house one day and I had told her, you know, if something ever happened to me, this is what I want you to do, you know, that kind of stuff, because I had never really talked about that type of thing with them. And which they, my kids had experience with death at a really young age. They lost an uncle when, you know, they were really young. So they had always been exposed to that. And after I had talked to her, she says, well, if anything ever happens to me, I want to be buried in my cheerleading uniform. And I'm like, okay. So fast forward to the 27th of October. I'd had to work that morning. I think I only had to work until noon. It was a Saturday. And I went to work. She was supposed to go to work before I ever made it home. And when I made, got home, I said, why aren't you at work? And she says, oh, they called. I don't have to go in until later. She says, will you fix me some stir fry? And that was one of her favorite things. She loves stir fry. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I got enough time. I can get that done for you real quick. So I made her stir fry. And she got ready to go. And she was getting ready to walk out the door. And she always had this thing where she would stand there and she'd say, come love me. And she, that was her way of saying she wanted a hug. Just come uh-huh. love me. Yeah. So we were standing there and she's like, come love me. And I'm like, okay. So I walked over and I gave her a hug and I said, all right, be careful. I love you. And she walked out the door and that was literally the last time I seen her. After she had got off work, I waited about an hour and she hadn't made it back home. And I called her and I said, where are you at? And she said, I told you I was going to go stay all night with a friend of mine's house. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Well, I knew that this friend was in college, Hmm. but I didn't think anything about it. I thought she still lived with her parents. So I really didn't think anything about it. You thought they would be chaperoned or observed somebody in charge. Right. So I, I just figured that she lived at home and because we don't live too far from Ball State University in Muncie. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about it. I'm sorry. And I got off the phone with her, and that was the last time I talked to her. A little bit later, it was probably, I had, we went to the school for something of Emily's that night at the elementary school, and I came home and, you know, got ready for bed and went to bed. About five o'clock in the morning or so, my phone rang. And of course, it scared the crap out of me because who calls you at four or five o'clock in the morning? Yeah. And I answered the phone and it was a good friend of mine. And she said, where's Amber at? And I said, well, she stayed all night with a friend last night. And she's like, okay. She said, I got this weird text that I needed to call you. And I'm like, well, I have no idea why. So she's like, all right, let me call you back. And I'm like, okay. So we get off the phone. A few minutes later, she calls back and you could tell she was shaken. You could hear Mm -hmm. it in her voice, you know, that she was trying not to cry or break down or whatever. And she said, I need you to call the farmland police. And I'm like, okay. You know, I was like, I I had no idea what was going on. So I get off. You just woke up. It's 5 a.m. It's 5 a.m. I just woke up. I'm like, of course you're not you know, that early and get startled, you're not thinking clearly anyway. So I'm like, okay, so I get off the phone and I'm like, 
I don't even know how to get a hold of the farmland police department other than calling 911. So I'm starting to panic a little bit and I'm calling her phone repeatedly. And of course, there's no answer. So a few minutes later, I call my uncle. And at this point, I'm starting to, I'm getting very worked up, starting to yell. I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm supposed to call the police department. I just, I don't understand what's going on. And he said, I'll be there in a minute. So in that exchange, it woke up my youngest daughter, Emily. She's six and a half years younger than Amber. And it woke her up and I, t- I yelled at her. I said, I don't know what's going on. Go get dressed. I don't know if we need to go to the hospital. I, I don't know. So we're rushing around the house trying to put some clothes on and get ready to leave if we have to leave or whatever. And I see the lights of the car pull in. It was still dark out. I mean, this was, you know, late October. So it was still dark out. I open the door and my uncle comes walking around the corner. And all he could say is, she's gone. And I remember starting to scream. I remember him taking me into the house and sitting me down. And he was talking to me. What he was saying, I don't remember. Emily starts crying. I remember her crying. My aunt's trying to console her. And I don't remember anything for at least, it was after daylight. So it was at least an hour to an hour and a half before I really remember what was going on. And after I started, you know, really computing things, I thought the very first thing that came to my mind was, Oh my God, I'm going to have all these families come in. I have two sinkfuls of dirty dishes. I need to run the sweeper. No. It's amazing what shock does to people because as long as I didn't sit down, it couldn't be real. I had to get up and start doing things because I knew people would start coming. And my aunt, she kept telling me, just sit down, sit down, I'll do it. Just sit down. So I remember her doing all those things. And then, of course, I had family start coming in. My uncle actually left to go pick up my mom and Amber's grandma, brought her home, went and got my grandpa from the nursing home, brought him home. So we were around the house all day. I had a few people that I had never met before. I had one lady come to the door and she introduced herself and she said, you're not going to remember this, but this is who I am and this is why I'm here. She had done a fundraiser for another member of the community that had passed suddenly. Actually, she was in the stage collapse at the state fair. So she had done a fundraiser for them, and she was bringing all the paper goods in that they had left over because she knew we would need them. Then people started showing up with food, and it was very chaotic. And I remember one of the very first people that I called afterwards was a good friend of mine that had lost her son to cancer he was five and I asked her I said can you come over right now I need to talk to you and she's like yeah and she was the first one there outside of my aunt and uncle she come in and she sat down and she says what's wrong because I didn't tell her what was going on on the phone I didn't want her upset to drive 
And she came in and she sat down and she says, what's wrong? And I said, I need to know how you did it. And she says, what are you talking about? I said, I need to know how you got through Connor dying. And she's just looking at me and I said, Amber was killed last night in a car accident. And I just remember breaking and of course she came over and was consoling me and stuff. That was probably one of the hardest people that I had to tell just because I knew that she had been through the same thing. Yeah. So later that day, for some reason, after things started, I started coming to and was able to function a little bit. For some reason, I remembered her saying, I want to be buried in my cheerleading uniform. So one of the other first things that I had done was call the cheerleading coach and said, I don't care what it costs, but I want her cheerleading uniform. Of course, they wouldn't let me pay for it, but she is buried in her cheerleading uniform along with, she had, she didn't go anywhere without makeup. She didn't go anywhere without her cell phone. So she has makeup with her. She has her cell phone with her. She has a blanket that somebody had made her for Christmas. An extra set of clothes. She was a girl. She may need it. You don't know. I don't know how they got her in there because there was so much other stuff in there with her. But later in that day, the principal of the school called me and he said that some of the kids, they just, they didn't know how to handle things and they were coming to the school. And I'm like, okay, I'll be there. Well, Amber wasn't the only one that passed away in that accident. There was also two other boys with her. The driver was also killed. The other boy, he survived. They lifelined him to Ohio. He actually passed away a couple times in the helicopter, and they got him back, and he did ultimately survive it. Was that other boy a student at the school, too? They all three were, yeah. Yeah. Actually, the other two were seniors, and Amber was a junior. So I went to the school. There was some kids there, of course, and I spent a little bit of time with the kids, and I didn't take time for myself from the beginning. It was, I want to make sure everybody else was okay. I want to make sure Emily's all right. I wanted to make sure all of her friends were okay all the family members. So I just, I didn't really take the time to let it absorb because things happen so fast, you know, finding out. And we went to the funeral home to plan our funeral and everything was just a whirlwind. So Kim, you're the one that lost a daughter and you're consoling other students. I mean, yeah, that's very selfless. I I have always Her friends have always meant the world to me. And there was a few of them that, after she passed away, they would come and spend the weekends at my house for, it was at least a year, maybe two years after she had passed away. They came religiously every weekend. They would come and spend it with me and Emily. And they are one of the huge reasons that I was able to go on because I still had a part of her with me. And that sounds a little, a little weird, but that's the way it was. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but so when we went to the school and there were the kids and stuff, I had talked to the principal and I said, 
I know this is going to be bigger than the funeral home. Because with two in the community passing away, and it being in high school, and they're going to have all of their friends from school, I said, I know this is going to be bigger. I said, is there any way that we can do the funeral here? And he said, absolutely. So later we did go to the funeral home to make arrangements. And they told us at the funeral home that, you know, with it being such a young person, you know, normally visitation is like four hours. Used to, they, they would do two hours in the afternoon and two hours in the evening. And they told us that's not going to be long enough. You need to do at least six hours. So we did six hours. And so we got all of that taken care of. And then I started hearing rumors about what had actually happened. And I don't know why everybody thought I needed to know all of the nasty rumors. But, I mean, eventually I did find out what happened. Basically, they had been at a party. The driver had been drinking. And he tried to beat a train. They actually hit the third engine of the train. Amber was in the back seat, and she got thrown. She didn't have a seatbelt on, and they actually didn't find her for a, a few minutes after everything happened, and all the medical and all those people came. So it was a few minutes before they actually found her. So this guy was so drunk that he thought he could beat a train, and then he literally hit the third car. Like he didn't right. even. That's how. That's how much he misjudged it. Which, of course, you know, the trains go pretty quick. But the third engine is what he hit. Yeah. Could you have gone without knowing? Or did you want to know? I, I don't know. That's kind of a hard question. I think I wanted to know. A part of me wanted to know, and a part of me didn't, I guess. Which I did find out that she was at a party at Ball State. I don't know why she left there, but she left with, I don't know if it was both of these boys or one of the boys ended up at the boy that was driving's house. And then they had left from there. And that's when the accident happened. It was around one or two o'clock in the morning. So I'll backtrack in a little bit though. Right before I had found out, I had... Uh, a friend of mine messaged me on Facebook. And I don't know why, but for some reason, I mean, I live out in the country, so I don't have great reception. And of course, this was 11 years ago. So the reception was even that much worse. But she had sent me a message on Facebook that said, please tell me this isn't your Amber. For some reason, my internet was really bad that day, and it wouldn't show whatever it was that she sent. I was within five minutes of finding out my daughter was killed in an accident from Facebook because this was before my uncle made it there to tell me. It still blows my mind that I almost found out that way. Anytime I see people on Facebook right after a death, you know, making comments or whatever, I always tell them, you need to give it 24 hours before you start posting things 
because you don't want somebody's family member to find out that way. Because I almost did. I have went off on a few people for doing that. So we got all the arrangements made. The train company actually came forward and paid for her funeral. They also paid for uh, the driver's funeral also. That's that's awesome to hear, but yeah, it, it wasn't their uh, it wasn't yeah. their fault. They didn't do anything, you know. Yeah. And at the, I mean at that point there was also rumors saying that the lights were out on it and they didn't see the train and I can't even begin to tell you how many versions of the story you know, actually came through. And the only thing of it is, is the only people that really know what happened was the three people in the car. And the one that survived doesn't speak about it. Which I'm sure he has survival skill. No, no doubt in my mind that he has survivor skill. A detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And I can't even imagine. I know with my sister's death, it was just my mother and I who knew what happened. Essentially, we didn't have it broadcasted to the news. Yeah, and this was. It was all over the news. Granted, everything that the news was saying was just that some teens was killed in a car accident. They didn't really know what had happened. They suspected that it was alcohol-related. And, you know, eventually when the toxology reports came out, of course, you know, that's public knowledge. So they did find out that, you know, that was true. But, yeah, it was on every single Indianapolis news station. And I didn't know it. But actually, one of the reporters had reached out to me and 
because we weren't friends on Facebook. It blocked it. So I never seen it until probably four or five years after. I just know it's frustrating and a, and a roller coaster hearing speculation, hearing rumors. And I luckily didn't have to go through that. But I did end up going to the media later about my sister's death. And then all of the speculation came out. And I'm like, this happened a year ago. Like, right. What do you, if I didn't know, if I was in your shoes, I would just, it would anger me so much. I tried not to, I tried not to watch the news because I knew it was there, but it was really hard not to. I ended up, you know, once they finally found out that it was alcohol related, then I did kind of watch a couple of them. It was all over the newspapers too. And yeah. I never, the only time I ever seen what the car looked like was in a newspaper article the day after. They had a picture of the car. I had forgotten. That was one of the things that I had blocked out of my mind for quite a few years afterwards. And then I finally realized that, okay, I guess I did see that. But that's the, your body's natural way of coping with things is to block them out of your mind. But it took me a long time. So this that happened early Sunday. On Monday, they actually started school late because they wanted to get counselors and everything in to be able to handle the kids' needs. So they started it late. They planned a candlelight vigil, which I know there was at least two of the news stations at, and a newspaper reporter from Muncie was there. And the gym was full with families and friends of both kids. And they had a, a nice little girl sing, and then they let kids get up and tell stories about them. And it was a really, a really cool thing that they did. And they had like posters, and they let everybody, all of the kids, sign the posters, and then they gave the posters to us. After everything was over, I didn't know it at the time, but the newspaper reporter was sitting behind me. And when we got up to leave, you know, I had all these people coming at me to talk to me. And this news reporter tried to get a hold of me to to talk to her. And my little cousin was sitting with us and she's like, oh, nope. And she she's the one that ended up talking to the reporter because she knew I wouldn't want to. And uh, yeah, then the calling hours was Thursday and the funeral was on Friday. And it was at the high school. The gym was, they had chairs all across the gymnasium and they were full and stands were all full. And I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing because since she was a cheerleader, I went to all of the games and all the basketball games and all the football games. And anytime I walk into that gym, my eyes naturally goes to where her casket was. And even 11 years later, it still does. I still do that. The grieving process is, is an amazing thing. Everybody is completely different. You know, I, my initial reactions was to make sure everybody else was okay. And then after everything was over with and we had family go home and, you know, people didn't stop over as much, that's when I started having the issues 
And there was many times that I would break down and I would, then I would, I would break down because she wasn't there. And then I would break down because I wasn't there mentally to, to raise my other daughter. Cause at this point we were, I was divorced and we lived alone. And so that made it even harder. Cause I just didn't feel like I was a, a good mom. And, and you it, can't be present no. when you're grieving. No. You're, you're just checked out. And I can, I remember specifically at least twice telling Emily, if the shoe had been on the other foot, I would have been the same way over you. And she's like, yeah, mom, I know. Because she was only 10 when this happened. So she was really young. And I felt horrible that she had to deal with that at such a young age. She still, she still has a lot of problems over it. She just got married in the spring and we sat and cried and cried because Amber wasn't there. Pretty much immediately, I threw myself into helping her class since they were only juniors. I helped them with prom and graduation and, you know, all of that stuff. And I kept thinking, you know, once all this stuff's over with, maybe, you know, I'll be able to, to go on and, not be a wreck like I always was. And it doesn't ever change because after they graduated high school, then they were all going to college and then they were all graduating college. And now they're all having babies and getting married. And, you know, she would be 28 now. So it just, it doesn't, grieving is a lifelong thing when it comes to a child or a parent or, it's hard to deal with sometimes. Do you think it was her death that ended the marriage and ended everything? No, we were divorced before. Oh, okay. Well, we weren't really divorced. We were separated, though, and we were working on the divorce. Actually, her death prolonged it because we were getting really close to having everything finished and it being final. And then she passed away, and we put it on hold for probably about a year. No, I guess it wasn't that long. It was the spring of the next year. So at least six months, it ended up being on hold while we both, you know, dealt with it. Was it the first two, three, five years? How long before you felt you were engaged with the world again? It took two years for me to feel halfway normal the one thing about where i was working we had we called it our girls club i worked with a bunch of people that had lost children two of them had lost to sids a couple had lost pregnancies so i had all of these women around me that had basically been through the same type of situation of losing a child. Amber was the oldest one, but they helped a lot. There was some people that I worked with that helped even more than others. My boss at the time, I was off of work for two and a half months. I didn't go back. I wasn't ready to go back, but I knew I didn't have a choice. It was me. You know, I wasn't married any longer. I had to be able to fend for Emily, myself, 
I didn't have somebody to fall back on. So I knew I had to go back and I was far from being ready. I had started counseling and then I went back. But it was at least a few months after that that I just kind of sit there zoned out because part of the day. I don't know how I didn't get fired because I didn't really get anything done. But after I finally started getting into, you know, to where I was doing a little bit better, if I was having a really rough day, there was my boss at the time and another another boss, actually two different bosses. They could tell by looking at me if I was having a rough day. And my supervisor, she would, she could see it in my face and she'd say, you need to go on a walk. And I said, yep. So we would go out and walk around the parking lot and she would talk to me until, you know, talk, basically talk me off of the edge of having a nervous breakdown. Distract you. Yeah, yeah. distract me pretty much. And then I would start feeling better and I could go in and, and continue. But yeah, it was about two years before I finally started getting a little bit more normal. And I mean, I do really well now. Just don't talk to me in August and October. <laughs> August is her birthday and my birthday. And then, of course, October is when she passed. So those months are usually a lot rougher than others. I'm sure the holidays aren't great either. No, they're not. And I didn't realize how much. I mean, yeah, it was rough seeing all of her classmates going through, you know, their graduations and and having babies and getting married and, you know, all of their lives continuing. But I didn't realize how much it would affect me seeing Emily, my youngest one, go through her life and knowing Amber's not there. Amber's not there for graduation. Amber's not there when she turned 16. Amber wasn't there when she went to prom, you know. She wasn't there when she graduated college. She wasn't there when she got married. And now I think the older Emily got in these milestones that she was passing is she got worse and worse as she got older because she wasn't there to, you know, be with her when she had her milestones. I never want to dissuade anyone from posting about their happy Christmas morning or anything, but I avoid social media and looking out at the world during the holidays because it's just a reminder of what I've lost in my life. Right. I get it. I completely get it. This year, it's even going to be a little bit harder because, like I said, Emily got married in the spring. Right now, she's in Chicago with her husband that's in the Navy. So she's not close. You know, it's five and a half hours or five hours from my house. So it's not like we can just drop everything and run over to somebody's house. She. They will be back for Christmas, thank God, but they didn't, wasn't able to come home for Thanksgiving. So that makes it even harder, you know, that she's not around. But luckily, they, it'll be done in June and then they're moving back home. So thank God for that. Yeah. I just always think about how employers give four days of bereavement. And I think four days. (laughs) I had two. Yeah. Two days. Yeah. Yeah. We only had, it was either two or three. I can't remember. But then we could go on FLMA, you know, as long as I was going through my doctor to be able to qualify for it. And that was for three months. And that was only for, we could only do that in a year. You know, it it regenerated after a year. 
So I went back at two and a half months just because I wanted that extra two weeks as a buffer in case I needed some more, you know, time off at some point. Yeah. After I went back full time, then I got on intermittent FLMA. The days that I had really, really hard time with, I could still call in and say, hey, I'm using FLMA and they couldn't fire me over it because you were only, of course, most employers are, you can only take off so many days, you know, without getting fired. So I was at least covered that way. I mean, I'm glad that they were fair and uh, seem to be, appear to be treating you (laughs) well. Well, Um, it's funny because the company itself wasn't too bad. My supervisor and my manager, they were both really good. My senior manager, I'm not going to say what he was because he wasn't as good. There's always one. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't as good. So like I said, I was off for two and a half months. Before this all happened, we did a rotating shift. We had three days where we were worked eight to five, two days we worked noon to nine. While I was doing my noon to nines, since my ex-husband and I had split, Amber watched Emily because there was six and a half years difference between them. After Amber passed away, I remember going into the office a few times just to check in, you know, let them know how I was doing and that kind of stuff. And every time I talked to him, I can't do a noon to nine. I don't have anybody to watch her. Oh, don't worry about it, you know. Don't worry about it. We've got enough people here that, you know, that we can cover it. You don't need to worry about it. I know I was in there three times and every time I would say something to him and he would say, don't worry about it. There's enough people here. We'll figure it out. Okay. The week after I started back, I had gone to my manager and I said, hey, our senior manager said, you know, I don't need to worry about this. And she says, hang on, let me, let me find out. So she went to go talk to him. Nope, you still got to figure it out, and tomorrow is your day. I had to work noon to nine the next day and try to find somebody to watch Emily. I was so mad. I almost walked out. Yeah. I almost walked out because I just couldn't deal with it. He was not the, the greatest person towards me. He didn't like me. And it's management's job to find coverage. It's their job to find your backup, whatever it is. Right. And between being the bereaved myself or working with somebody who had suffered loss, I always was frustrated with management because I'm like, I can do their job or get someone else to do their job. You know, it's like we're all here working together. And it just never seemed to come together very well. Right. Everybody that was on my team, plus my supervisor and my manager, they were both really mad that he had done me that way. But, I mean, what do you do? I had no choice but to to suck it up and do what I had to do so that I could provide food and housing and, you know, everything else for my younger child. So I just, I didn't have a choice but to figure it out. Has anyone ever given you why aren't you over it by now? Have you ever gotten any kind of oh, sense? Oh, yeah. Of- well, not towards me. However, I friends of mine have told me, you know, so-and-so's like, why in the world can't she just not get over it? You don't. It, it's, yeah. you are not the same person 
after your child dies that you were two minutes before they died. You are a completely different person. And it takes a while to get through the grieving process enough that you learn to deal with it. My way of dealing with it was to help her friends, was to help her classmates. That was my way to deal with it. I helped them. I would do charity work in her name to help, you know, just to help that. I still do that. I belong, which I haven't done it in a while. I really do want to get back into it. But before the pandemic, I would go to schools and speak about teenage drinking and driving through MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And that's my way of keeping her memory alive and teaching other children, don't put your family through this. Look what it done to me. Look what it done to her family. If you think that you can do something like that and nobody's going to care, you're wrong. And if I can do it and save one child and one mother from going through everything that I went through, it's worth it. Can I go speak without crying? No. Just like today. I mean, there's some days that I can talk and I'm okay. But there's other days that I can't. And you don't know what day that's going to be until you get into it. But if I can, if I can prevent one child and one mother from doing the same thing, I'll do it as much as I can to prevent that. Uh, I, I don't even drink anymore. It just doesn't appeal to me. It makes me feel like garbage. But I remember when I was in high school and whatnot, and you know, alcohol makes you feel invincible yes. on top of already feeling invincible mm-hmm. when you're a kid and just compounds the problem. Yeah. I knew pretty much from the, you know, from the beginning that I wanted to be able to do that, to speak on it, but it took me a couple years before I was able to. And I mean, the first one was, was really rough. And after that, it did get a little bit better. The last one I did, because usually they do a, a, do that type of thing during prom season, right? It's usually juniors and seniors that they gather together. They do a mock car crash. So it's a, a car that they have brought in that's been in a wreck. They have, it's usually student council that puts it together. So the president and whoever belongs to student council will dress and put fake blood on and that type of thing, lay on the car and one survivor comes out to call 911. They actually make a phone call to 911 and say, hey, this is a mock car crash. There will be police officers and fire departments and ambulances in the wings, right? So after they make this 911 call, all of these people come in to extract the people that are in the car. One didn't survive. It's a very, very emotional. I mean, not only for me to have to sit and watch it because I usually speak afterwards, but it's really eye-opener for the kids too. So they will actually bring a helicopter in to load up the student and take off with them. Everything is accurate on the way that it actually goes down when something like this really happens. And then afterwards, they usually have at least one speaker 
sometimes a couple speakers. The last time I'd done it was at our school, the school that my kids went to. I went to. Most of my family went to the school. You know, we live in a very small community, and pretty much all of us have stayed there. And I spoke right after a car crash. Well, this day that we did it, they had never done it before. There's a poem that sometimes they'll do at the end of it before the speakers come up. This time, for some reason, they decided that they were going to play music. And the volunteer fire chief of one of our small town communities, this school system is around a couple different small towns. So one of the volunteer firemen's chiefs, he was one of the first ones at the scene. So he's usually there and speaks at the same time I do, or right after me. So he was standing beside me, and we were watching the mock car crash. And I had forgotten that my cousin had ran for coroner. So I'm sitting here trying to hold it together, watching this mock car crash. Here comes my cousin in to be the coroner to take out the one that didn't make it. So that started to get me choked up. After everything was over, instead of doing a poem, they'd done a song. It was one of the songs that was played at Amber's funeral. And I completely lost it. And he was standing next to me. He said, are you okay? And I said, I'm just going to need a minute because that song was played at her funeral. So it was a, it was a few minutes before I could even get up and speak. And I think he actually went first that day and he was talking to the kids about how real and accurate the whole thing was. And when I got up there and I told him, I said, you want to know how real this is? That song that they played was at Amber's funeral. And I just, I really had a rough time getting through that one. That was the last one I've done. I really wish that people would be honest with themselves because I know we've all probably gotten behind the wheel at least once when we shouldn't have. I mean, and it's not only alcohol too, it's drugs. Yeah. And yeah. I have taken, since the accident, I've taken two drinks and I just can't do it mentally. It, I just, I don't know. I feel like I'm doing something wrong, I guess. I mean, I'm an adult. You know, I know I can do this. I always make sure that if I was going to do it, that there's somebody else driving. But I just mentally, I feel like, I don't know, I'm cheating or something. I just can't do it. And people don't understand that when you don't drink either. They're like, no. you don't drink? No, I don't drink. Yeah, I I get uh, a little frustrated and, I, I don't know, triggered now when people try to peer pressure me. Mm -hmm. And I will put Sprite in a little cup with a lime wedge when I'm at a bar or something. So when people are like, oh, we buy you a drink. I'm like, I, I have one just right. because, especially when people get like sloppy drunk and mm -hmm. are just, you know, oh, yeah. defiant, defiant drunk is what I really can't stand anymore. But yeah. And, you know, if I turned around and said, here, let's go shoot some heroin in the bathroom, they'd be like, what? I don't want to do that. And I'm like, but you're keep asking me to do a shot with you what's to me i'm like 
You don't want to do. Yeah. To me, I'm like, you don't want to do heroin because you don't want to do heroin. I don't want to drink because I don't want to drink. Right. No. I mean, I always go for the extreme comparisons, but. That's okay because I'm (laughs) I'm not above bringing my daughter into it. I mean, most people that know me well know I don't drink and they don't mess with me about it. People that I don't know, they'll say, you don't drink? Why don't you drink? Because my daughter died that way. And the looks on their face, they don't know what to do. They'll just turn around and walk away. And I'm like, sorry, not sorry. You shouldn't have pushed me. I have reasons why I don't drink. You know, there's no reason why you need to push somebody to bring that out of them. I don't have a better time when I'm drunk or on any drug. No, I don't either. I never did. (laughs) I mean, even when I was a kid, I never understood those kids that would spend $50 to get a concert ticket, go to the concert and get so drunk that they couldn't remember anything of the concert. And then you'd ask them the next day at school, hey, how was the concert? I don't remember. Why? Why would you want to do that? A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. If I spend that money, I'm going to watch it, you know. I'm going to make sure I remember everything that they did. I'm not going to go do that. That's crazy. I used to think alcohol made things more fun, but (laughs) I grew up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had my times that I drank and I just, you know, I was really young which I was pretty much out of the drinking phase before this ever happened. But after, after that happened, then I'm like, I don't even, don't even care to even think about drinking anymore. My biggest drinking phase was eighth and ninth grade. <laughs> That's funny. That's when mine was too. Yeah. <laughs> I remember going to school drunk and I remember getting caught by my grandpa. <laughs> he didn't know I'd been drinking, but he knew I snuck out of the house that morning. My grandparents raised me. 
and that getting caught by him, you know, because I snuck out of the house. That was the last time I had done that until I was an adult. <laughs> I think I had another wave of drinking when I was in my mid to late 20s. But by the time I was 30, I, I just wasn't that appealing to me anymore. And now I'm 47 and I have maybe had a few drinks in the last two years. Mm-hmm. And every time I drink, I get an instant headache. I, I don't get that buzz or that drunk. I just go straight to hangover and feeling crappy. It's just mm-hmm. there's, there's no in between and, and people don't get it. You know, right. it's, I mean, if you were allergic to shellfish and I said, Hey, eat some shellfish. You're like, ah, that would make me blow up and get hives. And I'm like, well, that's kind of how I feel when I take a sip of alcohol. Right. <laughs> like, I wish you would understand. Like, it's not, I don't know. Maybe I destroyed my liver when I was in eighth grade. I don't know. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. My second wind kind of came in my early twenties. Then we drank. We had a set of friends. I was married at that time. I was married a month before my 20th birthday. So we had a set of friends that would come over to the house on the weekends every now and then. And we would drink and have drinking games and that kind of stuff. It took me one time to get sick off of drinking and I never drank that much again. And even after, it was probably after 30, I hadn't drank, but maybe a handful of times since Amber's accident, I've actually had one whole drink and I was so tipsy that I was like, yeah, I can't do this again because I felt like I just felt horrible for doing it to begin with. Yeah. Now, Every once in a while, which my youngest daughter, she's over 21 now, so every, we'll go out for dinner or whatever, and she'll get a drink and I'll taste it. But it, that's as far as it goes. I never get one myself. Yeah, I guess my second wave was brought on because I was in a band and playing at bars and stuff. So oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do in a bar. But I, yeah, I, as you know, I've been going through a grieving process and um, right. it's just not. I think I'm at the two-year point or just over the two-year point myself. And I'm not going to say that that's an average for anyone, but it seems that at the two-year mark of lots of therapy, lots of help and support, Mm -hmm. I'm finally feeling present again. Yeah. I went through therapy for a year. So after that year, I thought, you know, I think I'm okay enough that I don't really need to, to go because... For a couple reasons. I thought I was doing a little bit better, number one. Number two, the therapist that I was going to and ended up only being at her main facility, which is an hour away. So it was a little harder to get away from work to be able to go, number one. And then, of course, the insurance I had at that point, it was $100 every time I went, come out of my pocket. And then I was also having to drive an hour to get there. So that's another, you know, $20, $25 out of my pocket. So it just got to be too expensive where I couldn't do it anymore. And so that was, it was about a, actually it was a little over a year after I had started. I feel that you have to have the right therapist. Sometimes you can not gel, not, you know, have a connection. That's very true. It's really true. I was really fortunate. I've been to two different ones, one years and years ago before the accident for depression and then after the accident, I tried to get into that one again. He was already completely booked up. So they ended up putting me with, with a lady and I really liked her too. So I was real fortunate both times that I, it was somebody that I could talk to and felt comfortable with and 
I can even say that I had a wonderful therapist, did a lot for me, gave me a lot of skills, but I guess we plateaued where I, I just got to a point where I, I didn't feel like I was learning anymore. And it wasn't that they were a bad therapist, but I just wasn't, I like, I learned what I needed to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And I needed to go find my next guru for my spiritual journey or what, however you want to look at it, right. my emotional healing journey. And so you can even have the greatest therapist ever, but if you're not getting any more from them, then you might need to move on to somebody else because they've taught you everything they can. And sometimes you need a different perspective. Right. Yep. I get it. So. When you first mentioned this to me and you said it was 2012, my brain went to the end of the world happens in 2012. Remember that was that whole idea. And I just thought it must have felt that way for you. Yeah. They always talk about perception of time or whatever. I remember being, you know, 16 and thinking, oh my gosh, when the year 2000 hits, I'm going to be so old, you know? And then you get to be that old in your perception of, how much, you know, I got to be this old before I'm really old. I'm 55 now and I still don't feel very old. I mean, I'm, I'm not old. Mentally, at least. Physically, I'm not so sure. Mentally, yeah. I'm a lot younger. But so now, you know, everything used to be before I graduated, before I got married, after I got married, before I had kids, after I got kids. Now it's after Amber died, before Amber died, your perspective changes. I guess if somebody suffers a tragic loss, whether it's a child or a sibling or any kind of, you know, any situation of a loved one, I mean, I, I had a a friend call me right after their brother took his own life and they called me just the way you called your friend. They said, what do you do? How do I get through this? And I, I didn't know what to tell them. The very first thing that she told me when I asked her that is, people will want to help you, let them. Which made no sense to me at the time. And then, of course, as time went on, you realize what she meant because people wanted to bring food and I don't know how many fundraisers that they had, school oriented in different places, places that I worked, you know, the people that I worked with did a fundraiser and there was all these fundraisers and I didn't understand what she meant until a day or so after. And then I'm like, okay, I get it. Because your first instinct on people bringing you things like that is, oh no, you didn't need to do that, you know? And instead, just be gracious and thank them because they think enough of you to bring you something or do something for you, the least you can do is accept it. Like you, I'm very independent, very Gen X, I guess. And I would add to that, don't be afraid to ask. No, don't be afraid to ask. Because if your friend asked you, hey, could you pick up some groceries for me? Or, hey, I really need this thing. Or could you pick up my daughter from school because I'm having a breakdown today? Would you feel burdened? No. You would gladly do it, and they will gladly do it for you. Yeah. And that, it's, it's hard to learn that, especially, you know, I mean, 
I was married for 23 years. We yeah. split up and I had to learn how to be independent real quick. You know, we start, we split up. I ended up moving out of my house and selling my house and one income family now. And you really learn quickly to be independent and a very strong independent person because you don't want to ever, I don't want to ever rely on somebody else like that. And it, it does take a while to be able to say, hey, I need the help because you get so independent. And I guess that's the, the biggest bit of advice I'd want anyone to know is if you go through any sort of tragedy is lean on your friends, lean on your family. Yeah, I've had a few people contact me, you know, after they had lost a child, you know, tell me how you got through it and, you know, that kind of thing. And I always wanted to be that mentor person for MAD. But I never really had the time to. But also, what worked for me might not work for them. Yes, I'll tell you everything that I did to help me through it. But that's not saying that that's going to help you. I don't want to, again, dissuade anyone for saying sorry for your loss when you share a tragedy. But I stopped saying that because I felt it was empty and, and hollow. Yeah. And when, when somebody tells me, like, I lost my daughter, I'm like, yeah, it sucks. Mm -hmm. It's going to suck for a long, long time. Yeah, it does. And it's funny that after a while, be, just because you hear people, I'm sorry, you know, I understand. Unless you have walked the same path I have walked, don't tell somebody you understand. Unless you have, you know, I lost a child. If somebody else that has lost a child that come to me and said, I'm so sorry. I understand. I, I completely understand where you're at. Thank you. You you do get it. And you feel like you're alone. You know, I'm the only person that has ever been through this. And then you have those people that don't have a clue that'll say, I understand. You know, I, I understand. I've been there. No, you haven't. It's all with good intention. It is. It's, it's I know it all, is. It's hard, though, because... But you don't... I mean, you feel like you're doing good, but you don't realize it until you've been on that other side, that it really doesn't help. Yeah, I, I try to reinterpret them saying, I understand, to I understand why you're grieving and not, I understand what you've been through. Right. Because, yeah, it's totally different scenarios mm -hmm. there. Right. So I just try to make that shift in my head of they don't mean that they can relate to me because they could never understand, but they understand why I'm behaving this way or why mm -hmm. I'm tormented right now. When I started getting through it and becoming better, number one, I was in therapy that helped. But then I started reading articles written by other parents that had lost children. When you read that, because as you're going through it, you feel, I'm, the, I'm alone. I, nobody knows how, exactly how I'm feeling. You know, you just feel completely alone. But when you start reading things that other people that has lost children wrote, they felt the same way. Most articles that I had read from adults that had lost a child, all of the things that we went through and felt is basically the same. 
Some people get over it a little quicker. You don't really get over it. But some people learn to deal with it a little faster. And some people don't. Some people, it takes a little bit longer. But that's what really started helping me a lot was reading articles and things that other mothers or fathers wrote. It just makes you feel like, realize that you're not alone. There are other people that felt the same way. That's why we do this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully to get other people to understand. Exactly. Thank you so much for telling your story, Kim. Well, thank you, Justin. I really appreciate it. I love to tell Amber's story, even though sometimes it is hard to get through. I think it's an important lesson for not only kids, but adults too. Thank you, Kim, for sharing your story. There is a Amber Morrow Memorial Scholarship. It's at the Community Foundation of Randolph County. Address is 120 West Washington Street, Winchester, Indiana, 47394. If you want to donate to Amber's Memorial Scholarship or any local scholarship or charitable organization in your area, please do. Thank you again for listening.